The scripture this morning is the 12th chapter of Hebrews. Hear these words from God's Bible. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that is so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross thorning its shame, and set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endures such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and you have not forgotten, and you have forgotten the word of encouragements that address you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those he loves. And he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure the hardships as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you're not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while, as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. 
See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau. Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit his, this blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast or such a voice speaking with words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. Even if an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirit of righteous men, of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator, <clears throat> the mediator of a few new covenants, and to the sprinkled blood that speak a better word than the blood of Abel. <laughs> See to it <clears throat> that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, 
Since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with never with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Bless the reading of his word. All right, you guys, we are, um, we're wrapping up a series on uh, discipleship. We've got this week and next week. Um, and so we are sort of tying it all together. Uh, this series has been called Follow Me. We've gone through the commands that Jesus has given us to follow him. But then we've spent like a pretty big chunk in the middle of this talking about like the nitty gritty tough stuff. Right? The cost of discipleship and all that entails and how we are to be powerful in weakness and how we are to live like Paul and how we are to endure suffering. And this week, uh, it, we continue uh, looking through from Hebrews 11 where we're talking through this hall of faith and all these people, which to be honest, I think intimidated a lot of us to say that we're in this hall of fame of all these faithful people. I am not even close to as faithful as Abraham and David and all of these people. How do I even stand a chance? And here we get to Hebrews chapter 12 where the author delivers this sort of climactic, encouragement where he gets big man he pulls out the big guns we have a vision of heaven we have a vision of the judgment not to intimidate us or to feel in fear and trembling in the sense that we are never going to measure up but instead for us to feel a, a sense of awe and wonder at what Jesus has done for us and the big, the big sort of theme here in chapter 12 is fairly simple. Training. Training. Olympic level training. So I wanted to start here by looking at probably the most, clearly, the most decorated Olympic athlete of all time, right? Michael Phelps. Most of us know that name at this point. Because he has more medals than any other Olympian in history. So if, if the author here is talking about a sort of Olympic level race, what is the most decorated Olympian of all time? How, how does this training regiment look, right? And we have, to, we have to sort of, for a second, imagine the beginnings. Michael Phelps didn't just start as the most decorated Olympian. In fact, for his first Olympics, he came in fifth. And you might say, well, that's not so bad, but come on, do you remember anybody who's ever come in fifth place in the Olympics? Michael Phelps was not after fifth place. That is not why he was training and working. And his coach, Bob Bowman, uh, came back to him. And he says, look, training is not so much just training your body, it's training your mind. He says, I know you have that natural competitiveness competitiveness and that natural drive. So I'm going to be with you and here's what we're going to do. And he wrote down on a piece of paper, WR, world record. And then he wrote the timeline, six months. That's what we're after. He says, we're going to get a world record. He says, you need to be training with the end in mind. So I want us today to lock that phrase in our memory as we're thinking through this text, that the author of Hebrews, much like Bob Bowman, Michael Phelps' coach, 
is training us to think with the end in mind. That every step of the way he's painting this picture of what will surely be so that we will be encouraged. So that we will know actually that somebody has gone before us and that it is guaranteed for us. But that doesn't negate the fact that there is a training regiment. One that will be taxing on the body, but that will be first of all taxing on our minds. Michael Phelps had to first believe that his coach could get him there in six months. He had to believe that with all of his power and all of his will. And then he had to do the hard training work to get there. He had to go in day in and day out knowing that what I am after is not a normal thing. That what I am after is an ultimate thing. Now, of course, for us, the ultimate thing is that much greater. Michael Phelps has a moment, an incredible moment of worldwide fame. But the author of Hebrews says, what you have is even bigger. What you have is even greater. See, so many of us uh, imagine our lives as sort of this is it, right? We may even come to church, we may have some sort of sense of it, but in the day-to-day life, we're not running an Olympic race. We're not running the marathon that, that this author is describing. We're in the rat race. Most of us in our day-to-day life are not comparing ourselves to the author and perfecter of our faith, to Jesus. We're not, we're not looking at world record. We're just looking to the guy next to us or the girl next to us and saying, am I better than them? I feel pretty good about myself. Right? I just want to just be better than them. In fact, we sometimes just remove people from our feed that are too great because it's just too discouraging. Right? It's nice to hang out sometimes with people that are worse than you so that you feel better. Right? Kind of. Kind of gives you a jump in your step. Well, at least I'm not like that. That's the rat race that we're running. That is not the race that this author is describing in this sermon that he's giving to compel us. He says, look, that race, you're actually, that race, Michael Phelps' race, all of these races, you're consumed with this idea of winning. You're you're consumed with this idea that I need to win the race. But if you study this text, it's very interesting that this author does not use the word win. Right? He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. It's just to run. Your life is a marathon that you are made to run. But you have never been made to win this in the way that we think we're made to win it. We are so consumed with this idea of winning that it's, first of all, it's a detriment to us in so many ways. We're so consumed with this idea of winning that our ego is all tied up in it. It's what makes us look from side to side. And it's also what makes us so discouraged when we hear of that hall of faith. It's interesting that the author says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, the author is saying, all of those people in chapter 11... The Abrahams, the Davids, all of these incredible people that had lives of faith. Imagine, imagine in your day-to-day life that you wake up and you are in a stadium. And all around you, as you get up for the race of that day, is this epic stadium that surrounds you, an Olympic-level stadium of people that have run the race before you. 
and have been elevated up. They are not screaming, you need to win, you need to be as good as us. They are just screaming, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. That's the kind of scream they're giving. And in first place, with the gold medal around his neck, is Christ himself. And he is your trainer. And he has said, I promise you that if you continue to run, you will be up in this grand stadium shouting my name along with these people. That's what this chapter is painting, is this beautiful picture of affirmation, the kind of affirmation we deeply desire, that is not just an idea or a thought or a good feeling, but it is an actual promise. But the problem, of course, is that we get in the way of ourselves. Jürgen Moltmann, a German theologian, says, the knowledge of the cross brings a conflict of interest between God who has become man and man who wishes to become God. That is the conflict of interest humanity is stuck in. We are stuck in this, this turmoil. I've described it as the chasm that widens between our feet, right? Which side will we choose? Will we choose this life, my ego, winning this? Or will we choose to not win anything because somebody else has won it for us? And accept that it is not about winning. It is about finishing so that we can proclaim his name in the next life for all eternity. That that's what we're actually in this life, in the winning of this life. We are wishing to become God. But in the next life, we will be with God and loved by him for all eternity. What could be better? Jackie Hill Perry is a, a spoken word poet, an author. And I was struck by one of her sort of, it was on her Twitter feed, it was the top logo sort of banner. She said this, she proclaimed, I am what God's goodness will do to a soul once God's grace gets to it. Jackie Hill Perry in some way has, in, in her enduring faith, has stepped into this sense that it is not about me winning. It is not about I am and therefore I have arrived. In fact, it is, I am not, and therefore, I have found myself. Therefore, by Jesus finding me, I finally understand who I am and what he is making me into. And I can see this marathon, I can see this stadium and this race for what it is, not a rat race, but a continual, lifelong training with the end in mind, with the end assured for me. You know, in life, we have uh, these concepts we call rites of passage. Uh, you may not think you're familiar with one, but as I read about what a rites of passage is, think in your mind what different rites of passages you're familiar with. Here's what a rite of passage is. A rite of passage has three phases. Separation, what's called liminality, and what's called incorporation. The first phase, people withdraw from their current status and prepare to move from one place to another. The first phase, the separation, comprises symbolic behavior that signifies the detachment of the individual or the group from an earlier fixed point or social structure, and then it cuts them away. So uh, here's a good example. You leave home to go to college. Separation, right? Then you're in this liminal space that is a period between stages where you have left one, but you have not yet joined the other. 
right? You have not yet become incorporated. You, you could describe this in all different ways. Perhaps college is the liminal space. Perhaps the gap year is the liminal space. Perhaps just working and doing your life, trying to figure out your next step because you, don't, you can't afford college. That's your liminal space. You're in some liminal space. And then in the third phase is incorporation. This is where the, there's a consummation, usually with some sort of ritual status, that you have now arrived into a new space, that you have been incorporated into a new community. Oftentimes it's signified with some sort of sacred bond, a belt. Think about karate, right? You get your black belt. Uh, a ring when you get married. You're now incorporated into a new state. A bracelet, a crown. And I want to I use this rite of passage as sort of a framework for this life. It is both a race, we are also in this sort of epic rite of passage. But our life, while it's made up of lots of little rites of passage, we don't often think of the entire thing as a rite of passage. But for a second, I want you to think about this idea of separation. What is the Garden of Eden, if not separation, right? If not being barred from the goodness because of the choice that was made. And what is the human existence, if not this liminal space in between, where we are never comfortable in feeling that we are fully incorporated in this life. We know that we have become separated from something, but we yearn and we desire and we feel these bits and pieces and we are just trying to get our way through life to eventual incorporation, to arrival. And we all seek it in different ways. Some of us, marriage is arrival, man. I just need to get married, then I will be happy. Some of it, it is, I just need that job. Right? If they just accept my resume and I get that job, I will have arrived. Some of it is, I just need my dad or my mom to love me. And then I've arrived. Right? I just need to get somebody back. We all have these things of arrival. I just need to be rich. Right? I just need my friends to say, you know what? You're somebody. And then I've arrived. And the ironic thing, the sort of the paradox of the Christian existence is that, yes, we are in this liminal space. Why would you train if you're not in this space between preparing for something? Why would there be an encouragement to train if we aren't eventually going somewhere to this end that the author has in mind? But at the same time, the, um, the, the relief, the massive relief of the Christian life is that at the moment of our baptism, we are incorporated. We have arrived, and yet we have not arrived. Just think about that for a second. I've thrown out this term, the now and the not yet, right? That we are both with Christ in the Spirit, just as much as we will be then now. Okay, just for a second, let that hit you. That Christ's presence is just as much here as it will be then. That his Spirit is just as in you. You are just as close to him now. And yet we are in a liminal space where you say, John, I don't buy it. I mean, I get it. I get it up here, but I don't buy it here. And on one level, you're right about that because our physical reality is broken. We're still in a broken space, but there will be a new earth in which it will all be complete. And then you will say, you know what? What you were saying, author of Hebrews, what you were saying, Jesus, what you've always said, now it makes sense. Now I get it. We will see then... But right now, it doesn't make us any less guaranteed that we have it. 
And so the author is saying, you need to get it. You need to have this invisible become visible. You need to see the stadium and you need to believe in that picture with your total conviction. Because it will affect every part of your life. And he says, here's the first thing you've got to do. Drop the weight. That sounds like a trainer, doesn't it? Okay, we've got to drop some weight. Right? The first thing we've got to do if we're going to run this race, you've got to lose some pounds. We've got to get in shape. He says, lay aside every weight, but what does he call the weights? The sin which clings so closely. And let us run the race of endurance. So I, I don't know about you, but this is the way my Christian faith has been described to me a lot. Look, John, we're in this for the long haul. You got to make this work for you. You know, get a cadence. Sure, you're going to slip up sometimes, but you know, it's all just, it's the long game. It's the long game. And... I don't see that in here. I don't see a cheat day in here. I see the author saying, as soon as you begin to accept that sort of apathy, that sort of assumption, that sort of addition to the paradigm, it will mess everything up. He says, there is no cheat days. So take seriously the sin and drop the weight. Michael Phelps' trainer did not say fifth was good enough. He said, world record, six months. He got serious. And this trainer that we have is serious. He's so serious. And this passage lays it out. He says, don't give up. But as the Western church, we have adopted the cheat day in the most extreme ways. We have taken grace, once saved, always saved. We have taken the beauty of the Reformation of all by faith, and we have said, doesn't even really matter what you do. Just come to church on Sunday. You know? You're saved. We have so cheapened this idea of discipleship that there is, like, effectively no training regimen prescribed from the pulpit of many churches. But it's so abundantly clear to me that what happens on Sunday is crucial. This is a reminder. This is the liminal becoming close to the incorporation. We are in a moment where we are glimpsing the stadium in this room on Sundays. And it will seem farther during the week. But this, this idea that church is not a moment on Sunday, but it is your life. And you are surrounded with it in all of your community. And they are the people that bring the glimpse of the incorporation of that moment of arrival. They're the people that butt that up against your life and remind you what it's like and how good it is and how wonderful it is and who Jesus is. So he says, don't give up. See that picture. And then moves on in verse 3 to sort of encourage us. And this is a hard section. Because how is suffering described here? Right? There, there's no pulled punches here. It's just clear description of how we should view suffering. Before I jump into that, I want to say this. This passage does not attempt to explain the why of suffering. I don't see any explanation here of why we suffer. This is a how we navigate. Suffering is a thing. We know it. How do we navigate through it? So I just want to give just a second to talk about the why of suffering as I understand it. I, I do not want to convey here today that God intended us to suffer. That in the garden, the plan was that we should all suffer. No, the garden was a place where 
Adam walked with God in the cool of the day, every day. The garden was a place of communion. The garden was a place of goodness and beauty. But, the, but because God desires us to love him, the garden was also a place where choice was always there. You could technically always break the rule. Because how does somebody love you unless they choose to do so? And so in a way, the concept of suffering has been baked in as an option because it is, it is the denial of love of the good God. So the suffering is a choice that was made long ago and that we inherit at our birth in our fallen nature. And we try as we might to say that I am not part of the suffering of the world. I don't further. I'm a good person. Try as we might. We know we all don't live up to our own standard. We know that we are not good. And so that puts us here. And we have to say this. We have to say, now, knowing that, suffering is, suffering is either two things. Either we are an enemy of God. And the suffering that we see is God our good enemy, our father who wants us back, pulling us to him in every method he can do so. So for the unconverted, for somebody who does not know Christ, their enemy, they have one enemy. Their enemy is actually a good God because that God is trying to pull them in every way through any piece of suffering, through any goodness. He is pulling them to him. But those of us who are in the faith, we've actually tripled our enemies. We no longer have God as our enemy. We now have the world, the flesh, and the devil. We've tripled it. So if you entered Christianity to have less suffering, guess what? Surprise. Three times as much. You now have the best protector, but three times as many enemies. You have an enemy inside, the part of you that inherited that choice, that inherited that proclivity to disobedience. You have the world, which is just that multiplied by like millions of people. And then you have the actual devil who is actually fighting tooth and nail to pull you away. Just, just sit with that for a second. So it's no wonder that the author is saying, let's talk about suffering for a second. Why don't we? Because anybody who's training for a race knows that when you wake up in the morning, I was just talking to Charles about this day, he went on a big run. Right? And when you wake up, you don't want to go on a run. Nobody wants to go on a run. Like, there's that moment where you just say, like, I would so much rather sleep. But you have decided, you committed to going on this run. So you're going to go on the run because you have the end in mind. Because you are after something. Because you know you are in a liminal space and what you desire is incorporation. And here's the other amazing thing about this passage. If suffering wasn't supposed to be a way that we were living, and it's actually just sort of an aberration in the system, a glitch, then why on earth does the most perfect being to ever live, God himself and man, endure through it in order to redeem us? It says verse 3, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. If your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. You haven't even shed blood, he says. But just get this. Jesus endured this suffering. He lived through the rite of passage with us. That he didn't have to live 
except so that we would have one that goes before us to show us the way as humans to deal with the huge mess we've made, the way out. And he shows us that he lives through that rite of passage in front of us. And it, it's, it's not as if he loves it, right? It says in verse 2, if we backtrack a little bit, he says he endured the cross despising the shame. Jesus didn't love being made fun of. He wasn't sort of like impervious to it. You know, wasn't sticks and stones. He, he, he despised it. He hated it. Jesus hates suffering. And yet, in God's almighty power and goodness, as a loving father, we must swallow this difficult pill. Verse 5, have you not forgotten the encouragement that addresses you as sons? This is pulled straight from Proverbs. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. No, be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So, I'm going to say something that sounds crazy. But your suffering is a sign that you have a loving father. Because, okay, so Tim Keller has this sermon where he talks about anger, right? A very adept preacher. And he says it so succinctly. He says, the opposite of love isn't anger. It's not. The opposite of love is apathy. See, a God who didn't, didn't use the suffering around you, who didn't sometimes cause you to suffer to discipline you, is a God who does not care about you. But instead we have a God who gets angry that we might be lost, that we might be tempted by the world, the flesh, and the devil. And in his beauty and in his foresight, he has given us this word to see that that suffering is discipline. It's training. The suffering we encounter in the world is training that only a father would give to their son because they care about them that deeply. And he knows that unless we actually go through it, we won't get it. I was, I was cutting some stuff with Michael this week, and he came over, and he was teaching me how to use these different saws. I don't even know what the one I was using was called a Dremel. And I was cutting through some nails. I'm, by the way, I'm not a craftsman, if you can't tell. I was cutting through some nails, and they were red hot. I could see them red hot. They were sparking as I was trying to cut them off. And what do I do in my idiocy? Except, like, as it's almost off, I, like, try to touch it with my hand real quick to, like, get it to break. This thing was red hot. Of course, it, like, burns my finger in that moment. I know not to touch the nail. I know that. I know that a thing that sparks and is red hot is not something you should touch. But I can do it. Like, I'll be fast. I'll get it done. Right? And what does it do? Of course, it burns me. But in the same way, God knows that, look, I could, you could read the Bible all day long in a room. That's just this insulated, padded room that everything seems just kind of fine. You're not going to get it. You're not going to get the beauty unless you see the gravity. Unless you travel through the darkness, you will not see the goodness. So we are training. We are being trained. Remember, not for the now, but with the end in mind. 
The end is not that we would, we're not being disciplined so that we will always stay in this place. We're being disciplined in this liminal space so that we will be ready for the incorporation. So that we will be ready to return to the flock a man or a woman, trained by the Father, brought up to be ready to be an adult. So the training is important. It says, God is treating you as sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and sons. If you don't get discipline, then that's a sign nobody cares about you. And we know, parents, we know that's true. If you didn't get angry when your kid disobeyed, if you didn't get righteously angry that the rule was broken, the rule set up for their good was broken, what kind of parent would you be? So then he encourages us in verse 12. He says, therefore, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet. Train so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Get back to a few of these things. These are crucial. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it, many become defiled. And he says this, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy. This is not just talking about sexual morality. It is forefronting that. But it's saying, or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. Now, how many of you remember the story of Esau, right? Very famous biblical story in Genesis. And what happens is that Esau... And Jacob, our, 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 our two sons of Isaac, right? And Jacob is, is more of the homebody. And Esau's more the like out there hunting, macho guy, right? Taking, taking the world by its teeth. And, he's, and he's, he's out there and he comes back from hunting. And he's just famished. And he says, just give me some of the stew. I, I'm hungry. And, and Jacob says, okay, fine. Because Jacob's a schemer. He says, fine, I'll give it to you if you give me your birthright. And Esau goes, I'm not even going to live to get my birthright unless I eat right now. I'm so hungry. So I want, I, what's happening here? He's given us this picture for a reason. He says, don't be like Esau who sold his birthright for a single moment. What's, what's Esau doing in that moment? Esau is being woefully short-sighted. He feels like, I'm so hungry, I'm starving. If I don't eat, I'm not even going to have that thing. I live for the right now, and what I need right now is that food. He's saying, don't be so short-sighted. When we live in the rat race and we don't see the heavenly, when we don't see the surroundings in the stadium, we will be short-sighted. We will see only what appears to mean something right now. Only what serves us in the moment. We will only be after winning if we don't see that Christ has gone before us and won on our behalf. And he's saying, don't do that. He's saying, look, this is, this is the section of this chapter where he gives a warning. And he says, this is the warning I want to give you. Perspective is everything. Perspective in your life is everything. 
The reason Esau blew it so deeply is he didn't have a correct perspective at all. First of all, Esau, I don't think in that moment, really gave, he didn't care. It says in Genesis he despised the birthright. What that means is that Esau actually said, I don't need what my dad has to give me. I can get it on my own. Right? Kind of maybe a classic. Some, some oldest children definitely fall into this space. They're like, I was brought up good. I'm going to go get it. Right? I can do this. He was out proving himself. And he said, I don't need the father. And I don't need what he has to give me. Then, of course, the passage goes on and says, what happens? Esau comes back. And who's already gone and gotten the blessings? Jacob in his trickery is dressed up like Esau, has done all the things, has gotten the blessing, and Esau comes to get the blessing. And in the moment where he really needs it, where his dad is dying and everything suddenly becomes crystal clear and visible, where the perspective is visible and things actually appear in reality as they have always been, they were just so far away you couldn't tell, that when he gets to that moment of reality, then he cries because he can't have it. He cries tears because now it really matters and now it will serve him to get it and he can't have it. You see that? Esau never stopped wanting to win. Even in the moment of going to claim his blessing, it was about him winning. And his tears were not tears over his father's eventual death. His tears were not tears over struggle and pain. His tears were tears of self-pity. Because he couldn't have what he wanted. He actually couldn't get everything all by himself. And what we see over and over in the world is people who live for the rat race, even the people who climbed the very top, the Jeff Bezos of the world, will face the end of their life. And they will suddenly see that they can't buy eternal life. That's what he's getting at. But we don't see it that way. And instead in our cheapness, I would say as a church, certainly, as Christians, we have done what Dallas Willard calls become vampire Christians who say to Jesus, I'd like a little of your blood, please, but I don't care to be your student or have your character. We want to be saved, but we don't want the training regimen. We want solely by faith, but we say it's not about works, therefore there's no works. And Hebrews is saying faith and then so many works, but all because of faith. Not so many works like Esau, so that you get the prize. Megan and I have a, just an incredible blessing of 10 days where our kids have been, um, they're at their grandparents, they're both sets of grandparents for the next 10 days. I tell you, we don't even like know what to do for 10 years, nine years, just we haven't had a moment quite like this. So we're sitting in our home and of course I do what maybe many guys or gals can relate to. I like can't handle it. So I just like start making lists of all the things I want to accomplish, right? Like I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I got to do this, I got to do this. And then I write, and Megan said, be sure we have some fun. And actually all of our friends have told us, be sure you have some fun, guys. And I'm like, mm, really? And so I, wrote, so I wrote down begrudgingly like, have fun. I literally wrote a sheet of paper that said have fun. And I like listed out some things. And then I was like, you know what would make this sheet better? And I crossed the heaven and I said, earn your fun. Earn your John, you gotta earn your fun. And then I'm like, now I'm motivated to do all this stuff so I can earn my fun. Pulling a total Esau, right? Pulling a total rat race move. 
saying, you know what, now I'm going to deserve the fun. But of course it doesn't work that way. We don't earn our fun. Our fun is given to us. The goodness in the world is not deserved. You're not taken for granted. So when you get suffering, it is not, it is not God withholding some goodness that you deserve. You didn't earn that. You've been given. We've been given the 10 days. We didn't earn that. We've been given the whole thing. Jeremiah 12 says this. So Jeremiah the prophet says, so Jeremiah's been just complaining, right? Just calling out. How is it so horrible, right? How is it so awful, God? He says, so Jeremiah, if you're worn out in this foot race with men, what makes you think you can race against the horses? If you can't keep your wits during time of calm, what's going to happen when troubles break loose like the Jordan in flood? See, as Christians, we are being prepared to fight the world. Three times the enemies, the world, the flesh, the devil. We're not running with men anymore. We're not in the rat race anymore. We're running around a heavenly stadium. We're running a race preparing us in a rite of passage in this liminal space to be incorporated with the God of all creation for all eternity. Guys, it's so much bigger than we make it up to be. It's so much bigger. And of course, there's, there's ramifications here and now. I hear all you social justice people, right? Now matters too. And it's clear in the text. All that section I just read. Why do you train? Make straight paths for your feet. First of all, to make your life easier for yourself. So that what is lame may not be put out of joint. Some of our suffering is self-induced. Right? Some of our impatience actually makes everything after it worse. We know that. Esau, when he was impatient and wanted the meal right now, it's likened to sexual immorality, right? I need it now. And he goes and gets it. And what does it do? It makes his life worse. And it says this then, strive for peace with everyone. For the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now that's... Interesting, we have an all-powerful God, all-good God, and yet, in our training, we have double duty. God has said, you are collaborating with me. The best way to raise a son or a daughter is what? Throw them into the mix and teach them on the job. He says, you have double duty to God and to men. I am going to bring you an inner peace because what you now see is a much bigger race than what everyone else is consumed with but I'm also going to bring an outer peace. Your holiness will actually have effects on other people. It says, I will take care of things so that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. God is concerned. God has given us a church to exemplify his holiness so as to win people through our training. Michael Phelps inspires you. Come on. He totally inspires me. I'm like, that kind of training is inspirational. I heard about Charles Run today and I said, you make me kind of want to run. Like, that's inspiring that you would commit to something. Because Charles, Michael Phelps, they have not said, I'm going to try running. I'm going give to it give it a shot. No. In the words of Yoda from Star Wars, do or do not. Right? There is no try. That's the deal. We have to commit. 
And so the writer lifts the curtain. He says, there's no trying. If you're trying, you're already out. He says, you got to do it. But you're not the first person to do it. Somebody has come before you. Right? Jesus has come up before you. And even in the last most terrifying days of your entire existence, things you couldn't even imagine happening, he will be out front, charging the front as your protector, and you will be drafting behind him. And when all of the consuming fire is raining through the spiritual realms, shaking out the world, when the earthquake to bring all earthquakes is shaking the earth at its foundations, you will not be shaken. That's way better than a world record. But it doesn't take six months. It takes your whole life. Let's pray.